Hi, I'm Christine Dorr, owner of NeoCoco. And I'm Tammy Tan, owner of Spice Hound. And we are co-owners of Kitchen 519, our shared-use commercial kitchen in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Let Us Wrap, the podcast about food, food business, and the people who work in the industry. Today, we're talking to Stephen Holyfield from Seismic Barbecue. Barbecue so good, you swear the earth shook. Hi, Stephen. Hello. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen, for coming down. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, what we read uh, about your bio is that you actually trained at uh, CCSF, the City College of San Francisco, right? Yes. Uh, the culinary program there was fantastic. Uh, I had bounced around thinking I wanted to do law or nursing or follow my wife into medicine and was just basically rudderless, directionless. And when I got into the first class of the culinary program, I came home that night and I told my wife, Mandy, I found my people. Like, this is what I was meant to do. And I had been front of the house being my, my entire career before that. But the back of the house was really, the, the program was amazing. And I can't recommend it enough for people looking. What year was that? Uh, that was 2005. Okay, so you just, you just took a, you were taking the whole program. Yeah, so uh, the whole program's the two-year associate degree program, and I did not graduate. I did the first two semesters, which are the kitchen semesters, uh, and then I found a I found a position and took it. I'm no, I have I've never really been the class guy to like sit down, but as far as the semesters where I would train in the kitchen, they were like, "Oh, great, this is awesome." Hey, next semester you have to take like math and English. And I was like, "I'm out. <laughs> nope." <laughs> Um, Goodbye. Yeah, and then I so I started after the second semester with a with a great foundation of culinary knowledge that that they train you for, and and just went from there. So uh, let me just kind of go back even before that. So right out of high school, you just went into uh, restaurant work. Yeah, actually, I was still in high school. I lied on my job application when I was fourteen and got a job washing dishes at a local like greasy spoon in in my hometown and i'll never forget walking into the dish pit the first day it was magical um it was <laughs> oh, amazing wow. um and I to think this that's day probably the first time that's ever been just uh, like uh, the, the smell and the machinery and the hustle and bustle of the kitchen and the servers and the cooks and the owner it was i mean i knew right then that I had really found my calling, uh, except in high school, they tell you, like, you have to go to college, you have to do something with a degree. And so, I again, I just sort of puttered around after high school looking for the, the thing that would bring me as much joy as, as washing dishes or serving tables or bartending. And, and I just never found it. So, uh, when my wife said, you know, because I would take two or three weeks of classes and drop out. And so we were in bed one night and she's like, what do you want to do? I said, honestly, I want to stay in the industry. And she's like, well, just do that. What do you need to do to do that? I was like, I need back of the house training. And so that's when I got into culinary school at, at City College. So this is the only profession that I've ever known is food service. Do you have your family? None. <laughs> Actually, no, um, <laughs> nope. none at all. My dad is a mechanic. My mother was a nurse. Uh, my brother is in tech. Um, so I'm the only one in the family that has gone into the food service. Um, really the only one that can cook. <laughs> you, 
you started out in pastry, though. Yeah, so I, I did start out at a, a in pastry, um, fine dining in San Francisco. Uh, my pastry chef who hired me had just come from a Michelin two-star restaurant. So her expectation was through the roof. And here I am with two semesters worth of kitchen experience. Um, but, you know, I, you, you learn quick. And yeah, it was, it was a challenging position. Pastry was not my calling, but I look back on it fondly. And, and to this day, I still like tempering chocolates for, let's say, like my wife for Valentine's Day or something like that. But yeah, I would, I would never make pastry my career. Why not pastry? The hours are terrible. The oh. place that I worked at, we were known as the late night place that chefs would come to us after they got off at nine or 10. And so as the, as the line cook for pastry and cheese, I wouldn't see my last ticket until after midnight. And then I would have to clean the station, go downstairs and spin ice cream base bases for next to tomorrow's service. So I get home at two or three in the morning, nowhere to park. I would double park next to my wife and she would kick me awake at six when she left and I would mm-hmm. take her. <laughs> and that was six or seven days a week because that's what the restaurant demanded of you. Is that typical? Uh, yeah. That position? I, I find dining. It's very typical. Oh. My wife told me one night, one of my rare days off, she's like, you know, if I if I wanted to marry someone with surgeon's hours, I would have married a surgeon. <laughs> and so right then I knew I needed the change of pace. And so that's when I looked for more casual, fine dining, found barbecue, and I just ran with it since. Wait, wait, wait. How did you find barbecue? I just, uh, I, I put my two weeks in at, at the place and put my application in at a couple of places and then found one in San Francisco, Memphis Minis Barbecue and the Lower Haight. And the owner staged me and I really loved it. And, and apparently I did a good enough job um, that, uh, that they hired me. I worked there for th- two and a half or three years. So, okay, from there... How did you spin into Seismic? So from there, I I left to help a buddy open a barbecue restaurant that was moderately successful, but still didn't didn't really stand up in the Bay Area. It's it's so crazy. So as they were shutting that barbecue place down, and uh, they sort of spun it into a food truck, and I ran the barbecue food truck for him. We ended up with two trucks and. Uh, couple of people. And then we were doing catering as well. And then after it's a couple of years and the food truck tr- craze started to die down and it was really hard to find more people, the truck was unfortunately involved in a pretty serious accident. Um, no one was injured, but the truck was totaled. I knocked it completely off the frame. And so the insurance dragged their feet. Um, we had to let everyone go. People needed to make rent, blah, blah, blah. That must have been devastating. It was, I mean, for for me as as the chef, I was like, okay, I'll just handle the catering part of it. But the owner had just gotten married and they were looking to relocate to Southern California as it is. And so I think when the insurance offered, lowballed him the offer, he, he took it and I bought all the equipment minus the food trucks. Um, so that's why I ended up with the smoker and, and all my all my kitchen equipment. 
uh, and then that spun off into Seismic Barbecue. So you have this cooker and you have all this equipment. Where do you go? Uh, so we were working out of a pretty terrible shared use kitchen at the time. There are a various range of landlords and the money that the landlords put back into the kitchen. This was one of the places that the landlord put nothing back into the kitchen. Two of our ovens didn't work. One of the ovens has started to grease fire nearly every time that you turn it on. So one of the other tenants there ran a food truck as well. And so we got to know each other on the food truck circuit. And he was having massive problems with the landlord. So he was looking for a space that he could open by himself and run as a, you know, either a kitchen just for him or a shared use kitchen. He found a, a really a diamond in the rough in San Francisco, and he needed a partner that had more kitchen experience than he did. So he came to me. We looked at the kitchen, and I mean, immediately we knew like this had the potential to be the best shared use kitchen in San Francisco. It is. It was a massive warehouse that used to be a uh, a meat packing facility. Um, it had great bones. It had all of the walk-ins that were already running, already serviced. Uh, I had one small hood that we could immediately start running our business with while we built out the rest of the kitchen. And so that's what we did. And wow, you are lucky. <laughs> it was, it was amazing. The landlords are really cool. Um, they're great guys. They really like seeing us build the business and uh, and really treat their space with with honestly the respect that this place deserves. I mean, it's it's one of the few one of the few kitchens in San Francisco where we have the ability to operate at the level that we do with our you know eighty feet of hoods and you know five thousand square feet of production space. Now you're just showing off. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, again, we just got lucky. There was no sort of like you know killer instinct or anything like that. We just they were advertising it as maybe a cold storage space, and so we we came in and we walked around it and we saw the hood and we're like. Does that hood work? Now like, we don't know, but it turns on. It's good enough for us. We'll take it. <laughs> we'll figure everything else out. Well, when did that start it? Uh, let's see. So we are coming up on our fifth year anniversary in August. So 2014. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it took you how long to build out that kitchen? About 18 months, maybe 20 months. And and again, we had a hood functionable when we moved in. So we were able to run our businesses while the kitchen sort of took shape around us. Just kind of like uh, when you started all your businesses, did you actually ever had a business plan? Uh, no. So I never had a business plan written out. Um, I, I went to the went to my wife and I was like, look, we have this opportunity to open this kitchen. An opportunity like this does not come around ever. So if we don't make this work, I need to find another line of work because this is like, this is the once in a career defining moment. Um, so I knew that we needed to make this happen. And, you know, we went to a financial planner and we laid out our finances, our personal finances, and every financial planner said the same thing. You guys can make this work. They, one of them even was like, so you went to talking to my wife, you went to medical school, you, you know, paid your dues and everything like that. And now you have a really good job. It's, it's Steven's turn. Like mm-hmm. this, 
this is Steven's opportunity. Right. Um, and, and she, you know, she was very supportive. She had been telling me to start my own business for a couple of years after I'd come home from the food truck and be like, I hate the food truck. <laughs> I need to leave the food truck. <laughs> but you, you had vision. And so you didn't really need a plan. No, Did I mean, you, we even knew, to get the, or you didn't get a loan. No. So we didn't get a loan. We, we second mortgaged our house um, to to open it. Um, they didn't ask you for a business plan. <laughs> no, they did not. We didn't okay. tell them why we were second mortgaging it. And you know, we bought right after the downturn, so our house rebounded immediately. We had all this equity. The banks wanted to give us the money, and they didn't care what we were going right. to do with it. Um, yeah. So great it, opportunity, it just, great timing, just the fantastic timing. Yeah, like we couldn't do this again. There's just no way that that everything would align. So we know that we're lucky with the kitchen that we are, and and we try to treat it with that sort of respect that this will never happen again in San Francisco. So I know you have a partner in your kitchen business and how has that worked? I mean, because you're uh, like a sole proprietor of your barbecue business, yes. but you have a partnership in your kitchen business. We we actually work really well together. Uh, he runs his catering business. I run mine. And then together we oversee the kitchen. I'm more of the boots on the ground kind of guy, the facilities manager, like Someone can't get a pilot lit. I'll light the pilot for them. You know, the walk-in goes down. I'm the one on the roof trying to figure out why the walk-in went down. Uh, and he does the financing, the lease structures, uh, you know, bringing new tenants in and stuff like that. Um, so it works really well. We have our, we both have our strengths that we play to. And, and we also have, have really taught each other a lot about the other person's strength as well. So it, it's been a great partnership. And uh, I mean, I can't see myself being a partner with, with someone other than John at the kitchen. Did you know that that was going to be? No, I, I, had, I, I didn't. I really only knew him from the food truck scene. So it just worked out. It just worked out. And he w- he's never been a chef guy. Um, so he's always been the finance guy. So I didn't know like what his work ethic was or anything like that, but you know, he's, he's been fantastic. Would you have done this without him? Uh, I don't think so. Honestly, I, we couldn't have afforded it. We both sunk a great deal of money into the kitchen. Um, and I don't know, I know for sure that we wouldn't have been able to pull enough money out of the house to do this by ourselves. We would have had to cut some massive corners and then basically wish it the rest of the way so having another guy having another person with some finances to to go in as well um definitely was was the key to opening that kitchen so when somebody came to you and said um i'm thinking of starting a business and having a partner what would you advise Uh, i would advise them to really know your partner on more than just a i worked with him or it's a friend of a friend more than you did more than i did (laughs) yeah because i you know i i think that's really important you really need to know how how is this person going to to be in situations that you can't really foresee you know like is he just going to be writing the checks he or she going to be writing the checks or when the walking goes down is he 
or she going to come in and help you move everything out of the walk-in or whatever your business is. So do you have that laid out in your agreement? Who yeah, is so, responsible for what? Yeah, uh, a little bit. But um, we do have a business agreement. And I definitely recommend people doing that. Um, take it to a lawyer. Make the lawyer give you a straight LLC business. Like this is who this person is. This is who this money coming in, money going out. Um, it makes it really easier, easy that way to have a clearly defined set of what the other person uh, expects. It, it, for example, what if one of you moves to Iowa? Um, how much do you value the business and can the other person buy them out? Do you have first right of refusal? Stuff that I had no idea. Um, right. Never I, thought about. Never thought about. Definitely know the person you're going into business with and make sure that this would be, this would be a person that you would want to have when the worst possible situation happens. Have you ever thought about a partner for Seismic? Yes. So I actually offer my sous chefs 5% sweat equity if they stay for more than a year, plus they get profit sharing as well. Um, I have not found that that sous chef yet, but definitely I would I would sweat equity someone into Seismic Barbecue. Um, being a sole proprietor, it's been tough, you know, trying to balance work life with running the business, um, vacations, birthdays, holidays. I, you know, I can't remember the last Fourth of July I spent with the family because Fourth of July is huge for barbecue. So I'm setting up at other people's homes. Same with like Super Bowls, World Series, NBA Finals. You know, uh, we have a 15 year anniversary coming up where me, I'm meeting the wife um, at a, at a restaurant, and I'll be working that entire day. So you know, I, it would be nice to have someone to farm some of those days off to. How come you haven't found that person? Uh, I think I think it's the Bay Area. Hiring in the Bay Area has been a challenge, and I think it's just going to get worse. I remember when I was coming out of culinary school, you know, you would get 200 applications for a job and be able to pick a really good candidate. These days, I actually just put up the ad on Craigslist and Poach for a sous chef. $62,000 a year, two weeks paid vacation, 401k, matching 401k, and profit sharing and the potential for a sweat equity. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I got one response. Oh, oh my goodness. When did you put it up? I put it up uh, about 10 days ago. Wow. Yeah. And I've gotten one response. That's amazing. Holy cow. Same with uh, Prep Cook. Uh, we pay our Prep Cooks $23 an hour. It's a great AM job if you have a PM job. Come in at like seven, work until one, go to your PM job. I'll give you, I'll guarantee you a certain number of hours that you need. Even if you do the job and it's done, I will still pay you for the hours. I've never found a prep cook. So it's competitive. I mean, competitive, uh, there, there's like lots of other people, businesses out there that would pay more and give more. You know, benefits. I, I would, I guess, but I've been, I've been trolling Craigslist seeing like, what am I doing wrong with my ads and all the prep cook positions that are on Craigslist pay less. All mm -hmm. the sous chef positions don't offer the benefits that I do. I, I just think that people that are in this industry are either getting out of this industry, they're going to gig work in this industry, or 
they're just leaving the Bay Area. Cause, yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, is this just, just the area It's just here? the area. I mean, do you feel that the, the salary that you're offering can, af- can allow a person to live in the Bay Area? Honestly, no. It, it really can't. But we're not at that position with the business yet where I can offer more. You know, our, our price per person, um, is, is extremely competitive and I, I get it. I completely get it. You know, what I do is I offer like all the chocolate you can eat while you're working. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right? You want to take <laughs> can bar- you do that? Home? Yeah, you know, absolutely. All the barbecue. All the barbecue you need. So what do you do in the meantime? I mean, how do you fill the void? So we've been using a gig app called Paired that sort of hooks you up with um, with industry professionals. And then basically you pay them a what Paired wants you to pay. It's like an Uber for kitchen work. And you know we've had pretty good success with that. We've had a couple of repeat people who they can favor your business and you can favor them. And so when they, you, they see one of, your, one of your shifts pops up, they can be the first ones that get that. Um, so I have to say, I, it's been pretty good so far. We've really liked the help that we get, but I would love to be able to go to, on vacation and leave the business with two employees that could run it instead of, you know, I can't leave it to paired people. They don't understand the smoker. Right. And they're kind of just temporary. They're just temporary. Yeah, so they're great for chopping and, and all that stuff. Sure. That's sure. that's also the difference there too, right? Because you're looking for somebody who is of sous chef level and paired potentially doesn't have that le- yes, level. Yes. Um, but I mean, I'm also looking for a prep guy and, and paired definitely has that. I, I think... I think with the gig economy, people like thinking that they're their own boss. And, and I can see that as, as a business owner myself, I love being my own boss. So I think you see that a lot with the Uber and the Lyft drivers, as well as with the paired. They can set their own hours. They can work when they want, want to. They can turn it off when they don't want to work. I just don't know. I just don't understand what their five or 10 year mindset is for that like what what do you do in five years when you just bounced from gig work to gig work and and don't have that foundation of skills that comes with staying with a company for for even six months i'm not saying you have to stay with the company for five years but it it just seems like people like to work when they want to work and turn it off when they they want to turn it off um I just don't understand how you live in the Bay Area like that. And also on the other side of it, too, do you feel that cities in the Bay Area, maybe they're not helping people stay in the region? Yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, housing is the number one crisis in, in the Bay Area. My first sous chef that I hired, he was good. He just moved back to Louisiana because he couldn't afford the Bay Area. And when I hired him, he was living out out of an RV two blocks away from our kitchen because that's the only way that he could afford to be in the Bay Area. Well, he so he worked with me for about a year and a half, saving his money, living out of the RV, and he just bought a house in Louisiana. Like, you can't do that in the Bay Area on a sous chef salary. I, I feel like blue-collar workers in the Bay Area are being pushed aside. And at some point, we're not going to have plumbers or HVAC techs or sous chefs left. It's just going to be, 
It's just going to be a city for the super wealthy and the people who are working three jobs to scrape by living with roommates and not being able to start a family. And honestly, if it, if it was like that for us, we would have left for Portland or Seattle or Utah or Phoenix, where all the chefs are, are opening really exciting, fun, creative restaurants uh, because they're just fleeing the Bay Area. Okay, well... <laughs> Let's go on to a happy note. <laughs> we transition a little bit and let's actually talk about the barbecue. All right. Okay. So I have lived in Texas and Kentucky. So nice. I know my barbecue. Awesome. So uh, where do you get your influence? We, we did see that you have four different regions. Yeah. Sauces. So the Bay Area, uh, for, for all the negative that we just talked about, the Bay Area is a wonderful melting pot of transplants. And we wanted to showcase the different regions of barbecue on our menu for those transplants. Um, talking about our four sauces, we do a couple of deliveries for a people who are working out here from South Carolina, and they have never seen South Carolina mustard sauce outside of South Carolina. So it's really exciting for them to be able to see that out here in the Bay Area and to talk to someone who who understands the, the regional barbecue and why the South Carolina mustard sauce is like like it versus the Texas red or the, or the North Carolina or the North Carolina vinegar. vinegar. Yeah. Yeah. So South Carolina had a, a German influence um, when it was when after the colonies were founded and they would bring their charcuterie and meats and pair it with German mustard. Uh, that sort of got bastardized into American barbecue influence where you would throw a lot of vinegar and a lot of uh, sugar into it as well. And South Carolina mustard sauce was born. So we understand those influences. We understand that barbecue is one of those foods that everyone has their preferences. Everyone's going to say, oh, well, my grandma did collard greens this way, you know, or my brisket, uh, we, I do my brisket this way. And so we've kind of embraced that, that it's sort of like a any man sort of uh, food. You would never go to like Gary Danko and tell Gary Danko, oh, I serve my cheese plate this way. But it's totally acceptable to do that with the pitmaster. And, you know, you sort of interchange ideas and, and, and talk to people about it. And I found that the Bay Area has a really vibrant barbecue scene and, and people who really take it seriously. And they're willing to share. And they're willing to share. So, I mean, do you have a favorite or is there a favorite? I mean, was there one type that's more popular than the others? So... I, this might be from working with Texans, but I think barbecue should be judged on brisket. If you can do brisket well, you can do any barbecue well. Pork is a very, the pork shoulder that we use is an extremely forgiving cut of meat. If it goes two hours longer, it's still totally fine. If you pull it maybe five or six degrees below where it should be, it's still totally fine. But brisket has this very narrow window of when it is considered done. Um, and if you let it go too long, you're going to have to have a chopped brisket sandwich instead of a sliced brisket, which is a, oh, yeah, a chopped brisket with tossed with the sauce is a, is a very clear indication that the pitmaster pulled the brisket too late. If you pull it too early and you get a really thin slice on your plate, that's an indication that it was pulled early and they had to slice that piece thin so it actually still chews and breaks up in your mouth. This is an art. Uh, it 
I yeah, I it, it is it's science and voodoo and a little creativity all thrown together. I definitely think barbecue is is a little mystical. It's a it's a it should be treated with reverence. Um, this is the true definition of American cooking, and it has some ugly roots. Um, you can trace it back to the slave trade, um, and I I think. People that do barbecue professionally need to respect where it came from. And so I, I, I do. You know, it, it has some ugly history behind it, but it is truly an American style of cooking that, that quite frankly, no one, no other country does the way that Americans do barbecue. Uh, appropriation. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I, I can absolutely see that. And if someone would come up to me and said, you're appropriating maybe a, a cuisine that, that you don't have really a right to, I, I would disagree, but I completely understand where they're coming from. Southern cooking is definitely, you can't say that it does not have roots with a culture that most of America basically crapped on for 200 or 300 years. So I, I definitely would respect that person's position and understand where they're coming from with that. I think people just don't understand and appreciate how much culturally food means to literally every culture out there. And I think people should really take a step back and understand that they're in a, they're in a really lucky position to be able to do a style of cuisine that has roots elsewhere. You know, like honestly, what other country can you do that? But America, it's such a melting pot. I just think people should respect, respect it a little more. Can you tell me the definition of barbecue? Yes, absolutely. So there's a, a couple of definitions based on where you are in the country. So Kansas City style barbecue, you cook the wood down to coals and then you put your meat in and your, your ribs in with just a coal bed and it cooks like that. So it's a little more subtle. The smoke sort of is in the aftertaste. You get a lot of that meat. Uh, great, great style of barbecue. Where if you go out to Texas, they cook with the whole log at a lower temperature. And so it's a smoke forward. You need to really know the correct amount of wood to put in. You need to know how to really stoke your fire. Um, you need to know the oxygen ratio. Um, you need to know how that carbon dioxide is going to react to the meat and when you should pull it or when you should maybe open the dampeners a little more. And then out here in California, we have Santa Maria style barbecue, which if you've ever seen those grills that they can raise up and down over a big pit, that's Santa Maria. So you can really control the the temperature of like your Santa Maria style tri-tip, for example, um, get a real good sear on it when it's super close to the wood and the flame and then raise it up as it cooks. So you get this excellent crust, but it's still nice and medium rare inside. So barbecue is very, very regional and there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's It's what you grew up on. It's where your parents were from. It's where your your grandparents were from. Um, it's truly like a really regional American style cooking. So the style that you do is definitely a Texas style. Yes, for sure. Yeah, but you're definitely not like typical Texas 
priority. No, right? absolutely because not. I would not, not. I would definitely not put us in the category of a typical Texas barbecue. We are. We're a catering operation that is looking for volume. Um, there are reasons that Franklin's and Pecan Lodge don't do the catering is because they really value a quality, quality product that one day I hope to get to. But honestly, I just don't have the experience that these three or four generation pit masters have. Well, Texas style, but I would never... I'd never consider us a Texas barbecue. Although the best compliment I think I've ever been paid was a Texan saying that we could make the Texas monthly fifth top 50 barbecue. Uh, and he was serious. I mean, that this guy was going to let you know if your product was not great. Uh, and he, he really liked our product. And so I, I took that as a, as a big compliment. Have you been to the different areas of the barbecue? Actually, been to the spot? I've been to North Carolina. Um, my wife was finishing um, med school back in North Carolina, so I lived there for a couple of years. Uh, and then uh, two of my two of my bosses, when I was working in barbecue, were from Texas. Uh, it's on my bucket list to do the barbecue crawl of Texas to the Carolinas to Kansas City with a stop in Chicago because Chicago style barbecue is apparently a thing, although I've never really known the difference between, let's say, Chicago style or Kansas City style. But my wife uh, does not like barbecue and I can't, no. <laughs> I can't convince her to go on this trip with me. No. I mean, I would love to stand for two hours outside of Pecan Lodge or Salt Lick or Franklin's in Texas. I'd love to see the handmade links that they do in Texas, the beef links, um, just phenomenal. When you find that sous chef, you need <sighs> I know. to go I need and to write go. this trip yeah. off. Totally, right? Yeah. Okay, Steven's advertising out there. <laughs> I need to that. <laughs> so that he can travel for food. That's the best reason. Okay, so your barbecue is dependent on the smoker that you got from Mesquite, Texas, right? Yes. It's a very specific smoker. Yeah, so it's a J&R smoker. Um, it's the only type of smoker that I've ever worked with. Both Memphis Minis and the business after Memphis Minis use the JNR. And it's a phenomenal product with excellent service behind it. I mean, you call these guys and be like, hey, this is Steve from Seismic Barbecue. I'm having a problem with my evac switch. And they will put the guy on the phone that built the smoker and he'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember that evac switch. I thought maybe one of the connections might be a little bit loose, but it passed a quality control. Why don't you open the box up and they'll sit there on the phone as you as you diagnose this thing. Um, phenomenal company. Uh, cannot recommend them enough. If you're looking for a barbecue smoker, I look to a JNR for sure. Have you ever had clients that say, oh, could you just use my smoker that's sitting yeah, there? Yeah, totally. Uh, we, we get that um, request sometimes like, hey, can you smoke on site? Right. And our response to that is you must be talking about grilling because like if you want me to smoke on site brisket and pork, you need to make me a, a guest room because this stuff goes overnight. So we don't get the we don't get requests very often for to do the offsite stuff. But uh, again, we can't because... The smoker that we have is big enough for me to fit inside standing up, and they're trying to, you know, do a little green egg. A green egg is a great backyard bar, uh, smoker, but it's not it's not in the same category as a commercial smoker for sure. So, is it possible then for somebody, a home cook, to get that? They have to really, really 
try a, a lot harder than we do for sure. Um, and really, really know what they're doing as far as keeping the coals, keeping the fire, using the correct wood, keeping the dampeners open and shut, waking up at two or three in the morning to, <laughs> to feed the smoker I, wood. It, it's sounding like no. <laughs> I mean, they get people, people are, people yeah, are people are super excited about their barbecue. And I'm sure there are some people in the Bay Area that do a great backyard brisket for sure. They do it for what, eight, nine, 15 people. I, we can fit 40 briskets at once in the smoker. Um, so we're doing on a scale that the backyard cook can really only sort of look in awe at. Yeah, and we will have a picture of Steven standing in front of his <laughs> smoker on the website if you want to see it. So wood is a really important ingredient. Yes, uh, wood is really, uh, it's key to our to our operation. Our smoker only runs on wood. There's no gas at all. Um, so if, if you have an incorrect ratio of wood to oxygen, you're going to get what's called a bad smoke on the meat. And if you ever had barbecue where it's made your mouth numb and it maybe tastes a little bit like lighter fluid on the back end, Ew. that is bad smoke. And that's because there was too much wood in and it just sat there and sooted, basically smoldered on the meat. And the kind of wood? Uh, definitely will impact your barbecue as well. We use all oak with a little bit of hickory thrown in for our chicken. But mostly it's just oak wood. Um, we feel like it imparts a nice smoky flavor to the meat while not being as aggressive as, let's say, a mesquite, where you really get a heavy mesquite flavor on on the meat. Uh, we want you to be able to taste the meat and also know that it's a smoked product as well. Is either a wood soaked? No. So we actually get a green wood from our vendor partner who supplies us with a like ready to go barbecue. This is not a piece of wood that you would throw into, let's say a fire pit because it would smoke your house out, but it's green enough where it still ignites and burns. Dried. Yeah. It's, it's dried it's slightly. Wet. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you want it to ignite and burn but you can't have it burn too quickly or hot because it will, one, burn itself down to embers and then you'll be stuck at three in the morning with a smoker that's, you know, 100 degrees less than what you want it to be. And you, you, it doesn't need to be soaking wet because it will smolder and give it the bad smoke flavor. Um, so it's really a science about how to how to get this fire going and, and the correct ratio and, and number of pieces of wood and, and even honestly how big the wood is. We have a uh, axe in the kitchen that we use to split bigger pieces down if we want maybe a two-hour burn or if we're looking to go overnight, but we're looking to put a little less smoke on it. Um, so we'll cut wood down to our specifications um, as we need it. So we talked about how the wood is one of the important ingredients in the meat. Yes, for sure. Do you spec the meat? Uh, yeah. So we use USDA Prime. It's from a, a larger producer. It's not like a, uh, a local or anything like that. The price is just off the charge um, for, for what we want. And, and people expect barbecue to be pretty reasonably priced. Right. But we do use Prime. And we have we have tried choice before, and you know the difference instantaneously. Mm -hmm. The marbling and the prime is so much better, and these are tough pieces of meat. the The brisket from the from the cow is 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 really they stand on that that muscle all day long. So this is a tough piece of meat that can really only be cooked at a low temperature for a long time. Um, 
And so the marbling is super important to keep it nice and moist throughout the cooking process. Do you butcher? Uh, yeah. So we do our all of our butchering in-house. We cut our ribs down. We butcher our briskets in-house. So we try to do as much of it as we can in-house and, and really respect the animal. Um, my, my wife is a conscientious vegetarian. And, you know, I, I think about that when we're cutting this, this animal down is you have to treat this with, with respect because this is, this is a living creature and you have to do the best you possibly can with this. Since your wife will never eat barbecue, what do you eat at home? You know, it's, it's funny. Um, my wife actually does not cook often. I also do not cook often. I get home and I'm like, the last thing I want to do is cook. <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't. Um, so my wife has been doing a meal program with a private chef. He delivers like once a week and it's meals. And, and she's, she's one of these uh, gals that can just throw something in the microwave for two minutes and eat it. I'm like, I'm not microwaving steak. Like, there's no way I'll microwave steak. Even if it turns out well, I'm not microwaving <laughs> steak. Um, so I do a lot of like, I'll finish at two or three. And then I, I hate to admit it, but I'll like, I'll hit Taco Bell. Um, it's terrible. It's so terrible. Um, shame, shame. Oh, no. I know it, it <laughs> really is. I'm not shaming anybody no, for their fast food it's love. It's really terrible. <laughs> Funny story. Um, for my wife's 35th birthday, we went to Bahame in Palo Alto, Michelin two star avant garde. Uh-huh. And I was instantly recognized because of my tattoos as industry. And so they, you know, treated us as industry and when we're joking around with us. And so as we go to leave after this amazing 16 course wine pairing, it was, it was amazing. We are joking about eating Taco Bell and one of the, one of the chefs peeks his head out and is like, that's where I'm going after dinner, you know, after, <laughs> after my chef. So it's, it's funny. It's very, I think industry is, it's terrible. Um, but you, you work all day and you you leave and and you haven't had a chance to eat all day and you're so hungry and you're so tired and fast food is so easy but that's really interesting though i mean because you have worked high end and you're doing catering and that means that there is a place for everything right even oh, absolutely. fast food right absolutely there's a place for everything i mean you know uh, uh round table pizza you know it's it was started here in the bay area by by a stanford student uh, you know and then they they got big and they blew up and you know now they're now they're round table pizza but i i, I think I think fast food, the the fast food industry and the workers, the we could all wish that we had that sort of consistency, right? I mean, a Big Mac is a Big Mac, no matter whether you get it in Nebraska or Alaska or wherever, it's always going to be a Big Mac. That is consistency that we should all strive for, honestly. So who's your competition out here? Uh, let's see. So there are a couple of catering only barbecue places, three or four. And then obviously the sit down restaurants do catering as well, but I think they do it to a lesser degree. I know we did it to a much lesser degree when I was at Memphis Minis. Catering is really a full time gig and I can't imagine running a sit down restaurant or a counter service restaurant and trying to push out all these orders as well. So because you have three or four others, is there enough business for all you guys or 
And what is your differentiator, I guess, among all of them? I've I've had a couple of of our our competitions product and and they're all good. I would say that the main differential between us is the the uh, the competition has more employees and so the owner is further removed from the product than I am. I cut every piece of brisket, I rub every piece of chicken, I do every sauce by myself. And I think customer service wise, I know we, we have fantastic customer service. We will go above and beyond to bring people tastings, complimentary tastings, uh, even for parties of like 15 or 20. So we try to distinguish ourselves by a quality product and customer service. Who's barbecue? If you do eat. Uh, Memphis Minis, for sure. Um, they do an amazing, and I, it's been years since I've been there, but they did a Wednesday smoked pastrami Reuben, and it was so good. Um, uh, yeah, so if I do have barbecue, I'll definitely make a trip over to Memphis Minis to have a, a Reuben. Um, Is that a comfort thing? Yeah, for sure. I you, think so. Yeah. Um, I think it familiar. was a very familiar. The, the owner was so nice to me when... Um, when I got there and then worked my way up and, and became sort of his kitchen manager, I, I had a, a really serious uh, medical setback early on in my career um, where I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and, and literally thought two years into my career that it was over. Like, there's no way I could do it. I couldn't even pick up a gallon of milk. Um, and so I went to the owner and I, I, I told him what was going on. And I, and I fully expect him to say, well, you know, like sucks, but I need someone that can lift the 100 pounds of meat. And he said, you'll always have a job here. Oh, wow. I'm sure you can understand that now as an owner. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like employees are so important and the relationship of an owner and the employee is is really key. I, I always think about that when, when someone calls out sick or their dog dies or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know. I would not have my business without my employees for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They, they make it. Is there any other barbecue out here that's exciting to you that you've seen recently? Uh, so it's it's a little bit of a, a drive, but Pig in a Pickle and Corda Madeira, I think, uh, was just named um, Michelin uh, Bib Gourmet. First barbecue place in San in the Bay Area to be named Bib Gourmet, uh, Pig and oh. a Pickle. Pig and Pig and Pickle. Pig and a Pickle. Great <laughs> name. Right? Yeah, I love yeah. that name. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Not barbecue. Any recommendations? Uh yes. Every time my wife and I are in San Francisco, we go to Boulevard. I mean, what can you say? Nancy Oates is a rock star, right? Like she's, she's a stud. Um, so we, we, and we actually knew one of the sous chefs there. Just solid stuff. You know what you're going to get. Classic. Classic. Oh, it's so, it's so yeah. good. Um, they, they make your meal around whatever allergies that you have. Um, and my wife has a few and they were able to do some rock star stuff for her. Classic cocktails, beautiful space. Um, so, you know, Boulevard is definitely our go-to. I love that place too. Yeah. I celebrated so the good. there. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I, maybe this because I worked at the same company that owned it as well. And it's also my wife's favorite restaurant in San Francisco, Farallon. Uh, another just institution. I mean, you look at the Yelp reviews, they have like 
10,000 Yelp reviews and still have a 4.3 rating. That is insane. I mean, let's face it. Everyone on Yelp has a 3.5 because online reviews are, are terrible and, and people are terrible. But for them to have a 4.3 after being in business since .com 1.0 is just incredible. If you chase trends, you're going to do well for two years and then you're going to vanish um, when the trend changes. But institutions like Boulevard and Farallon will will always they will be here until the earthquake knocks them down for sure. So it's between those two and um, Taco Bell. And Taco Bell. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, got it. <laughs> Who or what inspires you? Oh. Well, I mean, I, I would say my biggest inspiration is probably my wife. Um, you know, we grew up together. I've known her since the seventh grade. We never dated. Um, but she's, she's been a big inspiration to sort of push me to do my, my own thing and, and, and start the whole business. From a food standpoint, it would be my, my very first boss in Reading, um, who runs the Percos in Reading, Tom Lachance. Really, uh, he gave me the best piece of advice that I never took when I sort of knew instantaneously that I wanted to do this. I was like, Tom, how did you own the restaurant? How did you get to own the restaurants? And and how did you build this dynasty of, of diners around around uh, Northern California? And he laughed and he's like, go to college first. And if you want to own a restaurant afterwards, do that best piece of advice I never took. Um, and then my uh, boss later in Reading, um, Chef Jeff, was a real big inspiration. I was a server and a bartender at the time. And, you know, we just like every employee and employer, we had our kind of tiffs and everything like that. And I'll never forget one time he's like, look, man, you're good at what you do. You're great customer service. You can make a lot of money in this business, but you have to want to. You have to come at 100% every single day. I never forgot that sort of advice that he gave me. This is a tough business. You have to want it every single day. There are no personal days in this business. So any other advice that you got beyond that, that you would give to somebody who said they wanted to start a food business? I mean, I, I think I would repeat what Tom told me. Right. Um, go to college first. Uh, you really, you have to love this business like like nothing else. If you walk into a dish pit and start to smile and you go, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best dishwasher I can today, then look at this industry. But if, if you think that I'm, you're going to come out and you're going to be a celebrity chef and you're going to have all these, all these employees and you're going to be recognized on the street for being a celebrity chef. It's this industry is not for you. It's thankless. The work is hard. The pay is terrible. And it has been like this from the beginning of time in the restaurant business. It costs so much money in the Bay Area to open a place. Failure, I mean, you know, you, failure is not an option. I mean, it's, it's going to bankrupt people and it has bankrupt people and, and it will bankrupt more people. Um, it's, it's tough. I don't think there's another industry out there that has the failure rate and the low barrier to entry that the food business has. If you can write a check to a contractor and a landlord, you can open a restaurant. That is scary when you think about that. You can't just write a check and and be a plumber. You can't just write a check and be a doctor. But here people are with no business sense. 
no kitchen sense, no idea how to treat employees, hire employees, uh, and, and they want to open the next big vegan place or the next big Italian place. It's a, it's a business. It's an industry like no other out there. And you have to love, love it every single day to be successful. Don't do it. Really don't do it. And then go and do it. Yeah. Then. <laughs> yes. When people come into your kitchen and they want to rent your kitchen and you see what they're doing, do you have <laughs> judgments, opinions, Yes. Advice. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our kitchen has been pretty fortunate to rent to some established tenants, but we have had the people who have had kind of just a, a, a vague idea of what they want to do. And our advice is always the same to them. Like you need to get into an hourly kitchen and really test this product first before you sign a year lease with us. Uh, we, we don't rent hourly. So our kitchen is for if you have an established product and you have an established revenue source, uh, because we, we only sign your leases, you know, so you have to really be already sort of knowing that your product is successful and, and you have a consumer base out there um, before we would let you sign with our company or our kitchen. And we've turned away more people than we've signed there specifically because I don't want to be the person that puts another company out of business. We we actually have had a couple of failures in our kitchen and it's heartbreaking to see the owners struggle to come up with rent. It's a tough, it's tough. We've also had great success stories. Uh, we've had two people um, actually take their product nationwide with us, um, starting in our kitchen and then building distribution centers. And one of them is a gourmet dog food company that was one of our very first tenants. Um, and they are now nationwide and working out of Georgia. Um, another is a- What's the name of that? Uh, Nom Nom now. Nom nom. Yeah. Um, so they, they were bootstrapping at our kitchen and they've since gone national. And it's, you know, it's nice to point and say our kitchen helped do that. The, our kitchen helped that company hire 200 employees in, in the greater Georgia area. As a landlord, it's not just all about collecting rent and, you know, making sure the equipment is, is running and operational, but it, it's nice to foster that sort of you know, American bootstrapping sort of mentality where these companies started off with a single table and now have a 65,000 square foot facility. So it's nice to see the success stories. So let's just talk a little bit about um, kind of work-life balance or in your case, like health-life balance, right? I mean, how do you handle having MS and then doing two full-time jobs, right? Yeah, totally. Um I mean, I, I think, I think health life balance is important for, for everyone for sure, especially small business owners that, that maybe don't get the opportunity to, to have a great health life balance. I mean, honestly, even going back to the eating 4,000 calories of Taco Bell after, after work. <laughs> um, but some days it's a struggle. But, you know, you just sort of, you, you sort of work through and, and you sort of lean on what you can do well. I've been fortunate enough to be trained right-handed in the kitchen and the, the MS affects my right side, which for a right-hander would be tough, except I'm not a right-hander. I'm a left-hander. So I can actually chop with my left hand when my right hand gets too tired. 
I'll, I won't say it's as good as my right hand, but I definitely feel more comfortable using a, a, a knife in the left hand than most people I think would. So I, you know, I, I, I think people, everyone has something that they have to deal with, um, whether it's physical or mental or emotional. And I, I think people just sort of rise and, and, and do it the best that they possibly can. Um, and sometimes you need a little help and sometimes you can power through it. Have you ever had um, a situation where you just can't, can't go through with an order? I mean, because you couldn't work. So uh, the, the MS has been knocked down pretty substantially in the last five or six years. And I haven't had to cancel an order. But when I was first diagnosed and, and first going through treatments, it would come on so suddenly, I would have to call out like an hour or an hour and a half before my shift. And you know, in the restaurant world, that is, that's death. Uh, that is, you are fired. Um, so again, going back to Memphis Minis where, where Bob and, and not only Bob, but the manager that I reported to and, and even my coworkers who had to pick up my slack when I called off an hour and a half before this, this, this shift, they would work doubles for me. So I, again, it was just, uh, it was, it was a bad diagnosis in a lucky time in my life where I was working for a great company. So I, I, I mean, I think as owners, you need to really, really understand that your employees are dealing with stuff on a daily basis that, that maybe as owners were a little bit more insulated from. And again, it, it could be, it could be physical. It could be, uh, mental. It could be emotional, you know, maybe they're just having a bad day with the wife or, you know, their, their cat is super sick. Um, and I, I, I try as an owner to really be cognizant of letting people know what is sort of acceptable as far as, you know, calling out or using sick leave and, and, and what isn't, but we, we try to, uh, Error on the side of, of making sure that, that emotionally and physically, obviously the, the employees are, are good to go because you get a better product that way. I mean, honestly, if we're talking about ownership, if your employees are happy and healthy, you're going to get a better product and you're going to get a better work out of them. Compassion and empathy. I, I think, I think that's lacking a lot in the Bay Area and not just in the food service. Um, but definitely, like, especially if you were trained old school style, there is no compassion or empathy in kitchens. Um, so when it happened to me and I needed that compassion and empathy, someone was there to give it to me. And so I, I try to do that to employees as well. Uh, what is the name of your kitchen? How would people find you? So our kitchen is called South Basin Kitchen. It's in the South Basin industrial part of uh, the Bayview. We're on the web, southbasinkitchensf.com. We're listed in like a Craigslist if you search for like commercial kitchen rentals. And how do we find Seismic Barbecue? Uh, seismic Barbecue is on, on the web as well. It's seismicbarbecue.com. We actually do partner with a catering partner called Easy Cater, and you can actually order directly with them on the website, but it's a limited menu. That's the difference between our private menus and our corporate menus is we limit what we do corporate-wise. 
um, where the private client menus will cater around you and your guests. And how small will you cater for? So uh, if we're not busy, we go uh, all the way down to 20 people. Um, it just depends on the day. Weekends are usually pretty open for us because I, I try not to work the weekends. And we don't do any corporate catering on the weekends. And then for weekdays like corporate, uh, we, we have like a $500 minimum. Well, thank you, Stephen, for stopping by today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so awesome. And your kitchen smells amazing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much for stopping by too as a fellow shared use kitchen person. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Let Us Wrap with Christine and Tammy. Thank you to our editor and producer, Jason Anthony Guy. We would love to hear from you. Share your thoughts with us on Twitter or Facebook. We're at Lettuce Wrap Pod or email us at lettucewrappod at gmail.com. Take it away, Stephen. And until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>